The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's good during the course of the time together today to notice, uh, to sort of take some of the themes we're talking about and notice the arising and passing of anxiety even as we're doing our time together today. For example, we'll have small group meeting in about a half an hour. And so just knowing that now, just having heard that, like for some of you, that can create anxiety. So again, it's these transitions from anxiety not being so obvious to it becoming really there, strong in the mind, in the heart. And when it's really strong, dissipating, we really want to get familiar with the transitions. So it would be nice to hear from some of you, and feel free if someone brings up a hope that you had forgotten about, you can write it in, or a fear. <laughs> and, and like I said, we'll have small groups in about a 30 minutes, but let's just hear a few. Of course. <laughs> Anything to create some anxiety for you, Anne, <laughs> to help you learn. <laughs> Next time, wait till I call on you, though. <laughs> I'm I'm 56 now, and I still recently, I think just like two nights ago, had a dream about uh, being in some kind of academic setting and not having my paper done. <laughs> now, raise your hand just as a because of anxiety. How many people regularly still have dreams or thoughts about, oh, I didn't, you know, didn't get something done that we needed to get done? I mean, isn't that interesting? It's an archetype archetype about we're missing something, something important, and how could I have forgotten that I'm taking this class? <laughs> yeah, we're teaching it, yeah. One of the things that happens as we start paying attention and we cultivate, you know, we call it generally mindfulness, and this maybe is a good transition, um, is we become more, the mind, the knowing mind becomes more honest and not willing to be superficial or idealistic as much. We're still idealistic. And we tend to go from hopeful thinking, superficial, idealistic thinking, uh, sometimes we call it magical thinking, oh, it's all going to work out, it will be fine, don't you worry, it's going to, you know, all that kind of, they know what they're doing. The people in power, they know what they're doing. Those scientists, they'll figure out something about global warming. You know, there's going to be some kind of technological change. Well, it'll be fine. So we, until we, you know, we just understand our own nature and then by default human nature better and better. And we just know that, well, it is easy for people to be unaware uh, unaware of what needs to be done. It is easy for there to be problems. And we begin to uh, appropriately discern how things are unfolding and nobody is in charge within our own minds and in our communities that there are these many causes and conditions and things are unfolding and nobody's in charge. And 
So this is like the dawning of the insight of insecurity and uncertainty. And so if you're in that place, then your fear list is going to be a lot longer. But actually, not really, because you could probably put all of those fears into one, which is not being in control or, um, yeah, not, not being able to control outcomes, not being able to make the world the way it sh- should be, I want it to be, I hope it should be, I hope it could be. So that's the one fear that we're not in control. And the hope is, if, we're, if we haven't really developed our understanding, our hope is, well, if I just get my act together enough, or if I and other people get our acts together enough, then it will be a, we'll, we'll control what needs to be controlled and be fine. Or the way to take care of the fear of not being in control, well, maybe that's okay. Maybe it isn't a problem that nobody's in control. Or maybe that's, it's not a problem. Like, is impermanence, insecurity, uncertainty, change, death, gain and loss, praise and blame, does that inherently have to be a problem? So that's the deeper solution. And what I want to do now before we break in small groups, I want to start mapping out ways of doing this hope-fear dance or living in this kind of world where our conventional mind uses hope and fear to manage it and, and sort of start mapping out other strategies or the different strategies we have for living in an insecure, uncertain, ungovernable world. Because it is quite literally ungovernable, the world we live in. That's, it's not like someone made a mistake. It's just how it is. You know, there's these forces that um, are completely lawful. Like when you're born you die. It just, that just comes with the terror. It's not like some people get away with being born and not dying. It just, it comes as a pair. Gain, loss, praise, blame. Pleasant sensation, unpleasant sensation. It's like, that's the real mechanism of life. Let me read a little from Ajahn Sumedho. He, um, a really powerful book called The Sound of Silence. You can get a lot of what's in that book online for free if you don't want to purchase the book. It's called Intuitive Awareness. It's a PDF book. And then later, some of the people at the monastery added a couple chapters to that online for free book and had it published by a regular publisher. So then you can buy it if you want on Amazon or something. But the book you can buy is called Sound of Silence, and the book that's online for free is called Intuitive Awareness by Ajahn Sumedho. Sumedho, Ajahn just means teacher in the Thai sense and Thai language. And then uh, Sumedho is just S-U-M-E-D-H-O. And he's referring to this way that, I mean, how the Buddha began to map out his own experience of fear and hope in this very famous uh, way, you know, as it's been talked about over the centuries, of seeing what are called in Buddhism the four heavenly messengers. So Ajahn Sumedho is going to talk about this 
As we notice the world that we live in, the environment, the way it is, we find that it leads toward just recognizing the impermanent nature of our conscious experience, how things arise and cease, begin and end. This is the this is knowing the world, not judging the world according to some standard, but seeing that the world is like this. It is sensitive. The world is about birth and death, about meeting and parting, coming and going, good and bad, right and wrong, beauty and ugliness, and all the various gradations of experience and qualities that we are sub- that we are subject to in this form. Even though this seems to be an obvious reality when you recognize it, how many people really are aware of the world in terms of experience? We interpret it usually in a personal way. The habitual pattern is to interpret it all in terms of personal limitations, personal feelings, or personal ideas. In noticing the world as it is, we're seeing that it is not a personal thing. A person is a creation of the mind to which we we remain bound if we don't awaken. If we just operate within the emotional conditioning we have, then we see it in terms of, this is happening to me, I am good, bad. This is scary. This is beautiful. I'm skipping a bit here. Many of us have had to experience all kinds of frustrations, disappointments, disillusionments, failures, Of course, if we take all that personally, we want to end it very quickly. But if we put it in the context of knowing the world, knowing the world as the world, we can take anything. We have an incredible ability to learn from even the most unfair and miserable, painful and nasty conditions. These are not obstructions to enlightenment. This issue is is whether we use them to awaken or not. So that's why, to like one of the ways, <clears throat> as we in our small groups in a few minutes, <clears throat> and when we start to talk about, well, how have I managed the dance of fear and hope? You know, because it's it's really like a roller coaster, and we use hope like a drug, very much like a drug. We get high on hope, right? Like, just think recently, not even long ago, recently when we partook of the drug of hope. And it's like good caffeine or, you know, heroin. I don't know about heroin, but I do know about caffeine. You know, I can, you know, if I'm skillful, I can imagine renovating the house. I can imagine uh, retiring and having no responsibilities. I can imagine all these things that make me a little high. You know, if the the if-onlys in my life. If only I won, win the lottery. If only my wife does this, treats me this way. If only I have completely renovated my basement into this wonderful garden office space with sunlight and a little natural gas heater, you know, and all my books and all my files organized perfectly, you know, and the top best electronic equipment to help me do my job just right. If only, ah, then the work would come so easily. Everything would be just, 
Or, and, you know, in a corner I had my rowing machine that I happened to see somebody using. Oh, I, I read that Ajahn Sumedho, the guy I'm reading about uh, in some other place, because um, he just had his 80th birthday and they had this big celebration for him in Amravati, the monastery in England, where he was the abbot for many years. And uh, one of his students, who's now pretty old himself, uh, was talking about how, yeah, every morning he'd get up at four and he'd row on his rowing machine for an hour. And I thought, I'm going to do that. <laughs> if only I did that, I would be so much more relaxed and healthy. And you know how it is. So these are the if-onlys that we get caught in, the sort of... Uh... No, I didn't get it yet. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, still, it still lives as a if-only. <laughs> My wife teaches at McAllister, and so I have free access to their beautiful health center that they just, rec center that they just built. And every year I get my card so I can go, and I've gone once. And she's worked there, I don't know, seven years or something. <laughs> if only. So um, this is the, it's really that addiction to hope. And then, so we're motivating ourselves with that addictive flavor, the, the juiciness of the hopes, and then the prod of the fears, right? The terror that sort of gets us to do. So we're moving through life, uh, basically sucking the juice of this dance of hope and fear. This is what we live on. It's what gets us through medical school, or some of people at least, through medical school or through, you know, eighth grade or whatever it might be, it's like the fear of failure or the juiciness of success. This is what keeps moving us. So how do we replace it? So one way that we replace it is to begin to see the burden, the stress involved with the whole range of that activity. And that opens the mind to the possibility, as Ajahn Sumero is talking about, is knowing the world as the world. So it's not we're not letting the mind personally part, participate, get identified or attached to the juiciness of hope or the terror of fear, the prod of fear or the draw of hope. We see it, but we don't believe it. That's the change. We have to see it and not believe it as being personal. Whatever it might be, whatever I might or somebody, your own mind might dangle in front of you right now, like that delicious lunch that you brought, or the fact that you could probably sneak away and get to the co-op and get the perfect lunch that you've always wanted because you deserve it because you're doing so good being here today. You know, whatever it might be. Or maybe, maybe somebody will put out chocolates for all of us. <laughs> Every once in a while it happens. I did notice someone left a bag of Oreo cookies, which are now in the cupboard above the sink. <laughs> so, or I could, you know, we could dangle fear in front of us to protest. Like, if you don't get this now, who knows when you're going to have another opportunity and you will literally be a slave to this dance of fear and hope unless you figure out how to be free. This is your chance. Right, So we want to learn how to be skillful because most of the ways we try to be f 
skillful is going right back to the dance of fear and hope. So that's like so much of learning how to be skillful with anxiety is how to relate to it in a way that's not just more fear and hope. Hope that this medication I get from my doctor. I'm not saying people shouldn't take medication for anxiety. I'm just saying that whenever the mind gets dependent on something, there's going to be the fear of it not helping or the fear of it eventually not helping or the fear of whatever. But whenever this is saving us, then the mind is dependent on that and it's dependent on it not changing. So we're dependent on something not changing in a world that's always changing. It's always in motion. Nothing is fixed. It's nice now, because people are talking about it more, about talking about the United States as a, just, just one of many empires that arose, had its day in the sun, so to speak, and then fades and maybe eventually crashes badly. Who knows? It's yet to be determined maybe. But the trajectory is as real as any trajectory. You know, there's a birth, there are the causes and conditions that allow something to sort of be relatively stable, work relatively well for a while, until it doesn't anymore. And even in our lifetimes, we've seen some of that happen. Well, we have to appreciate how truthful, you know, what you're saying is. Like, it isn't easy because the people were around, the culture we're in, the causes and conditions were the soup that we're in. It, it sort of promotes the dance of hope and fear. That's, the economy is all about that. Everything is about that. Families are about that. It's like the most natural thing to have hope for your children, to be happy. And it feels appropriate for parents to find it completely unacceptable that their children might be unhappy. You know, that's just not acceptable. But we're not in control. I mean, it's really interesting to meet with people who, whose children are now adults and who either cycle through regularly or sometimes being really unhappy adults. And how parents have learned how to hold that with wisdom. Because it can seem, you know, when your child is young, like, no, that's just, like, that is not okay. And what pressure we put on our kids and our loved ones by demanding that they always be happy Otherwise, it will be unbearable for us, right? You see how this disease gets reinfected, kind of spread over and over again because we're, you know, we're putting it on each other, the hope and fear. And then what that does is it makes the experience of suffering wrong or bad, which makes us justify denial. So when we're suffering, we pretend that we're not suffering because it's not acceptable to suffer. And then when we can't keep it in denial and we actually become a suffering being for all to see, 
it's so humiliating. It really is. It's like uh, we have no worth because everybody's pretending they're not a suffering being. Because there seems to be some safety in denial or you know distraction or pretending. So the the way, Kate, you know, what is the other way? Well, it's not something that we're going to find from this place of anxiety. Anxiously trying to get the way is not the way. So the turning, the way to turn the corner, and this is something that you can share in your small groups. The way we turn the corner is we begin generally in small places, you know, just specific places in our life. We begin to turn that corner by uh, realizing that mindfulness, you know, and that's just a word, but mindfulness representing this way of being where the mind is clearly aware, intimate, but it's not acting out the dance of hope and fear. So what we place as that is intimacy, being connected, including being connected with the roots of hope and fear. So we're feeling the tendency to be hopeful, to be afraid, but we're not misinterpreting those emotional habits as me or mine. There's just that feeling of wanting, a kind of leaning forward or hoping, and that feeling of fear or aversion of holding back, pushing away, trying to get rid of. We feel the tendency in the mind but the mind recognizes that that's just that tendency being felt, being known. It's just that. So first we have to wake up to the, this dance. And the way it happened in the Buddha's life is he, you know, as it said, it's kind of a nice myth or metaphor, is one translation. I'll just read it because it's very sweet and you know, just sort of a confessional. I was delicate, most delicate. The Buddha's retelling the story of his childhood. I was delicate, most delicate, supremely delicate. Lily pools were made for me at my father's house solely for my benefit. Blue lilies flowered in one. White lilies in another. Red lilies in a third. I used no sandalwood, that's a for perfume, that was not from Benares, my turban, tunic, lower garments, and cloak were all made of Benares cloth, so the best fiber. A white sunshade was held over me day and night, so no cold or heat or dust or grit or dew might inconvenience me. So he was rich, you know, and had a princely upbringing. I had three palaces, one for the winter, one for the summer, one for the rains, right? During the rainy season, I was entertained by delightful people. <laughs> For him, they were women with no men present, it said. <laughs> and then it says, though meals of broken rice and lentil soup are given to the servants and retainers of other people's houses, in my house, white rice and meat was given to my servants. And he goes on and on about how well he was taken care of <clears throat> While I had such power and good fortune, yet I thought when an untaught ordinary person who is subject to aging, not safe from aging, sees another who is aged, this person is shocked, humili humiliated, and disgusted. 
For this person forgets that he or she himself, herself, is no exception. But I too am subject to aging, not safe from aging. Cannot befit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is aged. When I considered this, the vanity of youth entirely left me. So this is how we begin to uproot our dance of hope and fear, is we see how it doesn't make sense. Whatever we're hoping for, and we kind of caught that, I think, in some of the hopes, even people who were saying their hopes, you know, someone said, like, nobody dying or nobody going away. That we see it when we say that hope out loud, we realize, like, the vanity of that hope begins to disappear from the mind. I want to be the one who doesn't get old and decrepit. Right? Isn't that our hope? But in, to say that, and, and especially to say it when we're around people who are older and whose bodies are not, you know, as fit as ours, then we realize how, not just insulting to them, but how insulting to intelligence it is to want to be the one or saying, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I, I'm working really hard to always have enough money to take care of. I don't want anybody, I don't want to have to be dependent on anybody, society or, you know, whatever, to take care of me. And that's so insulting because it makes it seem like those people who are dependent need to be dependent, that it's their fault that they're old and need help or they don't have a job and need help or they're whatever unable to take care of themselves. It's like uh, we say this, you know, and then, but would we say this to somebody who their whole life has had to be dependent on personal care attendants because they're, they're not as able as other people? And he goes on the same with seeing somebody who's sick, somebody who's dead. Like the vanity of life can go away. The vanity of health can go away. The vanity of wealth or just having enough can go away when we see that this is simply the result of impersonal causes and conditions. The fact that I'm so privileged, you know, we can take personally, but it's not personal that we're so privileged. It's great. There's nothing bad about being privileged, but to somehow imagine that it couldn't have been otherwise or it won't become otherwise is a kind of vanity. So then at the conclusion of having these insights, so if you don't know the story, the Buddha, the father had had an astrologer do a reading of his son when he was born. And it said, the astrologer said to the, the Buddha's father, your son is going to either become an ascetic and leave behind his princely life and not take over the the fiefdom. You know, the father was the head of a sort of an area in northern India. Um, or he'll become this great king and rule many, many lands in a really great way. And the king, of course, wanted him to become a king. So he kept the Buddha from seeing the facts of life. You know, kept him in a very privileged very protected way. So 
So he only was around really beautiful things. And then as he got older, he just got curious and told his charioteer to take him out. And that's when he saw the sick person, the old person, the dead person. And he also saw a wandering ascetic, somebody who left behind family and the basic comforts of life to deepen their understanding. And then he said this, Before my awakening, while I was still an unenlightened bodhisattva, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, I sought after that, I sought after what was also subject to these things. Then I thought, why, being myself subject to birth, aging, right, to all the uncertainties, limitations of human existence, why would I seek that which is also fragile, impermanent, uncertain, going to come and go? Why am I investing all my eggs, all my whole life, in something that isn't certain? Why would I do that? Suppose being myself self subject to these things, seeing danger in them, right, pursuing something that is not certain, not permanent, I sought after the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme ending of bondage, nibbana or nirvana, which is the cessation of the dance of hope and fear. So this is something to begin to map out in your mind, and I'll give you some time just to reflect before we break into small groups. But you're considering what is it that you're beginning or have found in your life to whatever degree that doesn't come and go. So you might have done this amazing kitchen renovation and it might be really nice to hang out in your kitchen. Or you might have worked really hard to have some financial security. Or you might have worked really hard to overcome some addictive patterns in your life and have become a healthier person, better able to show up for other people. Or you might have spent a lot of time doing service, volunteer work, or working in your profession in a way that has made the world a better place that you feel really good about. Like you've really said, so you're going to look at the things that feel like sources of security in your life that have modified the experience of anxiety. So you can look at your hope list there, but basically you're asking yourself, how have I successfully, even to just a degree, modified the experience or uprooted the experience of anxiety and fear in my life. What has really worked? So that's one of the questions you can dig into. Mm -hmm. So... How have I been able to modify the experience of anxiety in my life, either temporarily, like I mentioned earlier in the day, that just having a a bunch of good routines keeps us in a relatively wholesome way feeling safe because I absorb into this. Now, this is what I do. It's 10 in the morning. I do this. I don't, and it allows you to have sort of narrow your view. 
It doesn't matter that someday I'll die. It doesn't matter there are children who are needy and starving and unnecessarily dying. Because right now I'm doing this. And this needs to be done. I'm just going to do this. And we get absorbed into it. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying it works to a degree to modify the experience of anxiety. And all the little and big ways we have done that. So that's just one way. But there are these other ways, like changing our idea of what the world is here for. Is it here to provide permanence and security? Or is the impermanence and insecurity a teacher basically saying to us, why don't you check out if it's dangerous to relax with insecurity, uncertainty? Maybe that's okay that things come and go, including life, including happiness, including health. Maybe that's okay. So that's one question. Another is to ask yourself, well, what's the hook that keeps you going back to that dance of hope and fear? So you're really looking viscerally at the juiciness, the intensity of the hope and the intensity of the fear. No, that's not okay. You know, like when you imagine getting the news you have cancer, for example, and knowing, like even in the best scenario, what a pain it is to do that, all that medical activity stuff, seemingly endless and noxious medical medical activity stuff. So you're looking at the hook that keeps the life, this life driven active in the hope and fear dance. Addicted to the intensity, unaware of being pushed around by that intensity, taking it personally. So, But look at some of your fears, especially, and hopes, and, and try to discern what is the actual dynamic of the hook. How do you get seduced, pulled back in? Will you think your life we think our life is about actualizing the hope, getting rid of the fear. As if we're going to get somewhere, finally. Some permanent safety. And then finally, um, so that's the hook. And then related to the hook, but sort of slightly different, are some of the stories you use to justify, normalize um, our participation in fear and hope. Like we heard a little bit from Kate too. This is like a common one. Like, what else is there? I mean, I forget exactly how you said it, Kate, but this version is like, I don't know who I am. This is all I know. And it's, and it can, even though it's like, uh, I mean, just to be provocative, to take that to its logical conclusions, it's something like, I know it doesn't work, but it's what I know. I know it doesn't work in the end, but it's what I know. Or everybody else is doing it. Who am I to rock the boat? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. 
To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.